So this summer we've been looking at the book of Acts, um, which is the story of the early church. And um, there are some sections where there's tons of text and we know a lot about, in this case, what was said. And then there are other sections where we don't know as much about what was said, but we know about what happened, like in chapters 5 and 6. And it's a challenging book because it'll say things in passing like Stephen and the apostles, who's a a figure we're going to look at today, did many signs and wonders. And you're like, why don't you tell that story? And instead, Luke records in chapter 7 almost entirely what Stephen said in response to accusations that happened to be true, that he was preaching Jesus was not just a carpenter, but was in fact Lord and Christ and the righteous one is one of the phrases that he uses. At the very end of chapter 6, it says that in verse 15, that Stephen, uh, they were gazing at Stephen. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. What does that mean? I would like at least four, if not ten more verses explaining both what that means, what it looked like, and how those who were opposing Stephen could tell. Why did God let them see it also? And yet, that's not how Luke records it. He mentions that in passing. And then he goes into Stephen's response to the Jewish leaders that were very upset with him for saying Jesus was not just a carpenter, but was Lord and Messiah and the righteous one. Luke is so specific about so many things, such as the form of government. In chapter one, he's very specific about both the way Judas died and some unfortunate events surrounding that death. If you don't believe me, read Acts chapter one. It's very interesting. Your Bible's not boring. Stephen is a man that was delegated, the office of deacon was delegated to him just one chapter before this. Sorry if that's not distracting to you. I know many of you are most distracted by ants. As the preacher, airplanes are the most distracting thing to me when outside, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love it out here, but well, anyway. And so what happens is the early church is both organizing and they're studying the scripture to understand as much as they can about who Jesus is and who he was and how the Trinity is and works and all that. And at the same time, they have to care for their widows and do the things that churches do, such as learn how to love one another in community. So in Acts chapter 6, Stephen is appointed a deacon. And yet immediately he starts preaching and... um, Some of you want to know all about the difference between deacons and elders. We're not going to talk a ton about that, but the way that churches are set up is that uh, deacons are the hands of the church, the, the mentors of sympathy and service to all of us, and especially to those who are ill and who need care in the church. And yet, so why is he preaching? Well, he's preaching because... We all have our specific gifts and we have the things that we're not gifted at and yet all of us are called uh, to share what we believe as best we can, when we can, where we find ourselves, right? And so if you're reading this and you know something about the difference between a deacon and in this case an apostle or an elder, you're like, how come the deacon is the one speaking? Well, circumstances. And I want to ask a question, and this is for everyone. Some of you are exploring the gospel of Jesus and considering it. Others have been followers for a long time. 
Do you know how to summarize what you believe? Because what you believe matters incredibly. This is, in some ways, the backbone of every philosophy book ever written, be it classical or continental or existential or Christian or whatever, is that our behavior follows our belief. What we believe matters. Whether you're a skeptic, whether you don't believe, whether you're considering, whether you're a skeptical believer, whether you're a believer, and this is what you... Do you know how to summarize what you believe? It's important. And so while Stephen was immediately called to the ministry, or was Stephen was called to the ministry of sympathy and service, the office of deacon, specifically care for widows, he immediately was in circumstances where he got to talk about what he believed. And so I just want to ask, gently and humanly, do you know how to summarize what you believe, regardless of what that belief is? It's important. And I want to point out what I was attempting to point out indirectly about chapter 7. Students of the Bible know this very well. There are our questions, and then there are the things that God chooses in His wisdom and fatherly care to tell us. And so while I want to know more about the angelic face and why Stephen's opponents could tell he had an angelic face, and I want to hear I want to know every sign and wonder done by the early church. The Holy Spirit led Luke to tell the story of Ananias and Sapphira, of the way that they weren't taking care of certain widows and they were taking care of other widows because they were struggling with preferential treatment and they were trying to fix it. And then he tells this long story of the speech that Stephen gave. I believe we only get about maybe half of it, maybe a third it seems pretty clear to me in studying Acts chapter 7 that Stephen could have gone a long time. I think my sermons are long. I think he could have gone a couple hours. He was pretty passionate. But as you study the scripture, one thing that is humbling to us and perhaps frustrating is we have questions and the Bible has substantive and good answers, but oftentimes the questions and the answers don't match up. I believe that's for our good. I believe the questions that scripture answers are better and more life-giving than ours. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to read Acts chapter 7. The outline says with a face like an angel from chapter 6, and then I call this words like a viper because Stephen is going to really anger the Jewish religious leaders. Um, you'll see that in the text, but I just wanted to prepare you. This is a long section of Scripture. Um, for some of you, you enjoy hearing 50 verses led. For others, you're going you're gonna to lose focus for a little bit. That's okay. You know, we all have our, our struggles, and it's all right. But if you have your Bible, we're in Acts chapter 7. If you have your device, we're in Acts chapter 7. Um, or you can just listen. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Because Stephen had been talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child." And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners 
in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. That's a summary of Genesis chapter 11 through 50. You can go read it. One thing I'd like to point out very briefly, incredibly precise continuity between Acts chapter 7 and Genesis 11 through 50. That's interesting, in my opinion. And I have a microphone. Picking up in verse 17, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants. This happened... There's Egyptian record of it and biblical record of it. Now we're in the book of Exodus. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers." the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord turned to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This is the point where Stephen's beginning to preach a little bit alongside recounting the story. This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. 
This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David. That was a summary of Exodus uh, through 1 Samuel, basically. Mostly the book of Exodus, but also Leviticus and Numbers, and to an extent Deuteronomy. And it's incredibly faithful to those texts. Stephen knew his Bible very well. Picking up in verse 46. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people. That's a tone change in sermon. Stephen, is he's saying our, because he shares the Jewish faith with these men and women, but he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and so he changes his tone. He's been leading up to it that he's going to say, Jesus is Lord, and this is his way of introing it. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised, in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And that sounds really harsh, because it is. But you'll see Stephen's goal. His goal was not harsh. And I believe Stephen was about a third of the way through his sermon at this point, but he did call them stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. He said that Jesus was the righteous one. So, picking up in verse 54, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down the garments at their feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, meaning he died from being 
hit over and over by rocks. What a story. One of the longest speeches we have in the book of Acts. And it didn't even get to end. A couple of chapters before, Peter spoke about David because he longed for his Jewish friends to come to follow Jesus as Lord, and David predicted that. Stephen had apparently been talking about Moses pretty regularly, saying Jesus is a new and a perfect Moses. And so they asked him, is that so, Stephen? And he began teaching. One of the things that's going on in the book of Acts is we do not have the fully developed theology of the book of Romans, of the book of Hebrews. I imagine that some of the apostles learned from Stephen, who's full of the Holy Spirit, connecting dots. Through the rest of the New Testament, the dominant metaphor of the work of Jesus Christ is the Exodus. So they learned from Stephen and they began writing about that. Peter wrote about it. The Apostle Paul wrote about that. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, we don't know, wrote about that as the metaphor that Jesus leads his people out of a worse slavery. The Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. Jesus leads us out of a slavery to sin and death into new life with him. Stephen is learning, full of the Holy Spirit, and I want to point something out. When we, I don't know about you, but when I hear that they ground their teeth and they stopped their ears and they killed him with rocks, my temptation is like those guys were bad. They were unsophisticated. They were the bad religious types and there's a good religious type. Two problems with that. One, we miss the fact that they actually listened. They were actually listening to Stephen. And their conviction was based upon actually understanding what he said. Not believing in it or trusting in it and being unwilling perhaps to consider it. You and I in reading this story, the point is not to be mad at them. The point is for us to hear also what Stephen said. That Jesus is the righteous one. That he's Lord. That he's the Christ and the Messiah. So I don't know about you. I don't know if when you read about people grinding their teeth, that doesn't mean, by the way, if you grind your teeth in your sleep, it's okay. That's not what this text is talking about. Although it's not good for you. But sometimes, I, like I'll read a story, they ground their teeth, they stopped their ears, they rushed him and killed him with rocks, and I think it's pretty clear he was not done talking. We think of the Bible as this stagnant, boring book. And then Stephen said this, and then they killed him with rocks. No, they like stopped their ears and ran to him and drug him out and... It was a vicious and an awful scene. And the reason that it was a vicious and an awful scene is not because these are unsophisticated, silly people. It's because they heard him preaching a gospel of life. They rejected it. What you and I want to do with this text is not be mad at them, but hear Stephen, who is pointing to Jesus. He calls him the righteous one. He alludes to a statement that's used throughout the book of Acts that would have been illegal at the time that says Jesus is Lord. What I love about Stephen's sermon is it's his summary again of what he believed 
And we already know that what he believed led him to care for widows. I just love that from Acts chapter 6. Like he was passionate about what he believed. He clearly was studying. And that passion and that study led him to care for those in his local church. Stephen is beginning to point to Jesus when they get very, very upset. And so you and I don't get the rest of the sermon. I would love it, I suppose, if Luke had sat down with maybe Peter, James, and John. So he had a face like an angel. There's a story in the gospel where Moses and Elijah show up and talk to Jesus. And I don't know if you know the history of the Bible, but they've been dead for a while. It's one of the many things about that story that's interesting. And there was light. That's why it's called the transfiguration story. Maybe this was a little bit like that. Well, Luke could have asked Peter and James, what was that like? Did you touch him? Peter's like, no, I didn't touch him. I was freaked out. I just offered to build tents. And Jesus said, you don't need to build tents. That's all that happened. And Luke's like, man, that was disappointing from an interview standpoint. We don't know about the face like an angel or whether this had to do with the transfiguration. We know that Stephen was attempting to help his brothers understand that Jesus was not just a man, but was Messiah and Lord. And when they heard that, when he said, I can see him in heaven next to God, that meant Jesus is God. And they knew that and it bothered them. And the story gets uh, cut short. But what do we learn from Stephen at the very end? We learn in Acts chapter 6 that his faith in Jesus led him to care for those in his church. And then what do we learn with his dying breath? That he knew that because of the work of Jesus Christ, you and I are in need of forgiveness. And you and I need to learn to forgive. Perhaps the most amazing verse in an incredibly interesting chapter of the Bible, challenging in all sorts of ways, fantastic in its um, evidential representation of the truth of the gospel of Jesus, that the Old Testament in Acts chapter 7 fit. To you and I, that doesn't seem interesting, right? Like Exodus is here, Acts is here. The fact that they match up is interesting shows that the Bible is at least evidentially true that these men and women wrote it. I don't know if any women wrote it. We don't know some of the authors of the Bible. What we learn from Stephen is the importance of both our forgiveness before God. We can't be reconciled except through the righteous one. And that immediately becomes a life of forgiveness to others. That doesn't mean we tolerate all types of relationship. That doesn't mean we're just happy to see everyone all the time and we just pretend. But it does mean we don't... We don't try and hurt people when they hurt us. And that's real hard. <laughs> I was with my family all week. My extended family. It's not easy to both forgive and to extend forgiveness. But it begins with knowing that we need it to be reconciled with God, that we need the righteous one to both be the righteous one in our heart 
and in our head, and we need that. You and I cannot save ourselves. We can never know enough information to be reconciled to God. We can never behave well enough to be reconciled to God. We can never be kind enough with our words and with our hands to be reconciled to God. We need the righteous one. And inevitably, that leads us hopefully to care for our spiritual family as it did with Stephen, but also to learn to live lives of forgiveness where we do not pay back pain for pain. I, I think it's incredible that the last thing Stephen said was, don't hold this against them, Lord, which means he had already forgiven them for killing him with rocks. My family can be really mean. Even they don't do that. Is that too much? Too much of a combination of metaphors? Sorry. So we notice that Stephen believed in the truth of the gospel of Jesus. He believed in the historicity of the book of Genesis and Exodus and 1 Samuel, Leviticus, Numbers. His belief led him to study his Bible, learn that God loved him and liked him, that he was a good father. His belief, his belief in the history of it all, led him to care for widows and also to speak passionately about what he believed. And it led him to be a man who knew how to forgive even those that wronged him terribly and violently. If you are a follower of Jesus, I hope that you know. I hope that you're able and willing to forgive easily. If you are married, you know that the alternative is resentment and tension. If you have ever attended a church more than once or twice, you know that if you don't know to forgive, you won't have spiritual family, which is annoying and frustrating and imperfect, but also loving and long-suffering. If you are single, you know that if you don't know how to forgive, you will not have long-term friends. You will have acquaintances and people that you share things in common with. And we need friends. If we don't know how to forgive, we won't keep them. Some of us have children, and if we do not know how to forgive them, we will, we will misunderstand and, and not pull off our role with them, protecting them, teaching them about life, mentoring them. I think the, the most important thing, perhaps, parents mentor their children in is teaching them how to forgive us when we sin against them and us forgiving them. That's not easy to do, by the way. If you're an employer, if you have employees under you, if you don't know how to forgive, you're just going to cultivate a culture of fear. That's what your work environment's going to be. And it's hard to forgive your employees. Not for me. My employees are great. <laughs> but for... For those of you that employ people, it's difficult because they screwed up and you could take away their money and their office. But a follower of Jesus learns to forgive them and hold them accountable. It's not forgiveness doesn't mean, oh, that was okay. Never, that, that has nothing to do with forgiveness, saying what you did was okay. That has nothing to do with forgiveness. If you are an employee, you perhaps 
have the most amazing opportunity to demonstrate the gospel when your employer hurts you and you choose to not hurt them back, either through passive aggressiveness or through absenteeism with your work or whatever else. And that is not an easy, that's not easy to do. Forgiveness is almost never easy. We must learn to forgive our parents. Or, as every movie tells us, we will simply regret that we didn't. Doesn't mean that what happened is okay. Some of you are like, my parents have been gone a long time. I have a parent who's been gone a long time. I am still in the process of forgiving that parent pretty regularly. I can't cause him any pain, so I shove my anger at God, who is loving, helps me along in that in prayer. So I point to Stephen, whose belief led to some problems, but also to great joy that he knew he was a forgiven man. He cared for his spiritual family, and he knew how to forgive others. If you are a follower of Christ or considering it, it will lead you to care about things, and then your heart will be broken. Even in the United States of America, following Jesus will lead to some difficulty, and yet the joy is infinitely greater than those difficulties. We learn to both turn to Jesus as the righteous one, as Stephen did, putting our faith in him as Savior and Lord. We learn that we are forgiven, and then we move into the world as forgivers. As Rick led us in prayer this morning, as we sang about this morning, as we continue to hope. Would you pray with me? Father, as you filled Stephen with the Holy Spirit, would you fill us also with the Holy Spirit with a felt sense that you delight in us and over us. Because of the work of Jesus, we are reconciled to you. Love us and like us and call us your own. Father, as we sing just a little bit more, as we hear the wind, the birds, would you call to mind easily that we have the Holy Spirit, those who are trusting you, those who are considering you, would they know that that is a call to peace and joy? For those that call you Father, would you warm our hearts to the truth that you love us and are kind and patient towards us as a Father? Would you remind us so that we might be grateful of the work of Jesus Christ? that makes all of this possible. Thank you for the testimony of Stephen even amidst such a violent story. Fill us as you did him with the Holy Spirit. Amen.